Kansas' response to COVID-19 is personal and professional to Lee Norman. First, he's Secretary of the Kansas Department of Health and Environment, and on a personal level, his son contracted and fought off the virus. Welcome to the Kansas Reflector Podcast. I'm Tim Carpenter. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here today. You go by several titles, doctor, colonel, secretary. In your current assignment, you're KDHE's point person for evaluating the state's handling of the coronavirus. Where do we stand? Well, we started off this pandemic uh, in Kansas with a very strong response and marked improvement. There are some things that happened in May, and the numbers have uh, started to shoot back up again. So we are slightly leveling off right now, but there are still more cases added every day, and 350 or so cases a day is nothing to uh, ignore. So we're still seeing more cases, fortunately, lower hospitalization rate and lower death rate. Mm -hmm. Virus not going away just quite yet. No, not by any means. And it will never go away completely. This one is here for the long haul. I I like to put out a cautionary tale, and having been to the Middle East in 2017 and 18, there's a different coronavirus there, quite lethal, called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and it's a coronavirus, but a different one. It didn't peak out until the fourth year. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very ominous. So of concern, to me anyway, Kansas is about to open the doors to K-12 schools and the state universities. Are we ready for that? We are not ready for that uh, in August. Um, The executive order that uh, will not be carried forward by the governor, but fortunately I think is going to be adopted by most school districts, is to postpone anything opening up until into September. Uh, The reason for that was pretty obvious. The number of cases is going up. And quite honestly, to make a safe environment for K through 12, or for that matter, higher ed, a number of different engineering controls in terms of where desks are placed, how a lot of processes that need to be put in place for screening kids, for sequestering away those that are ill or might be ill. So we needed to have and help them uh, with more time to be prepared. And we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. Just a little footnote there, Governor Laura Kelly, Uh, issued an order uh, suggesting just what you said, that the public K-12 schools not open until after Labor Day. And the State Board of Education voted that down five to five. And uh, some of the members of the board had a bit of tortured logic there, but uh, we'll have to let that stand. I love baseball, and uh, the professional sports leagues are trying to have some seasons. And I'm thinking about team-by-team outbreaks in, in baseball. What do you think about those those leagues participating in games? You know, it's interesting. The um, There's a lot of COVID-19 in professional sports already, and they've barely started. And you would think that baseball, or at the, let's say, high school levels, softball and baseball, would have enough social distancing. But when you watch what happens with high fives, you see people sneezing in the dugout and sitting elbow to elbow. It's not a safe environment. We've had a number of sports-related outbreaks this summer in Kansas, and some have been in um, baseball and softball. So I don't think that that's a safe environment. I think they're doing relatively well when they're uh, at practices. I've seen videos, uh, and they're doing the right things. But during a game, people lose their head a little bit and I think uh, don't put in the infection control practices. Speaking of that and people's discipline in terms of social distancing, masks and so forth, does anybody have any business going into a bar where you're elbow to elbow, people drop their masks as they're drinking or eating? I'm just thinking that's just a vector for infection. 
Yeah, they just immerse in virus when they do that. And people speak loudly. Uh, there's usually music. And when people speak loudly, there's uh, airborne droplets. Um, and they're very close to each other. It is absolutely a, a lethal brew. And we've seen hundreds of cases just related to three bars, even over a period of 10 to 10 days to two weeks, just in Lawrence, Kansas. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it seemed for a while that the virus was fading, uh, waning a bit, but now it's come back with a vengeance. Maybe you could elaborate on why. Yeah, we are making great headway. You'll recall that we predicted in March that we were going to peak out in late April. We hit the numbers, and kind of grimly, I might add, we we were very close on the total number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths, and number of uh, patients on ventilators, I might add. Predicted all along it was going to be about the 20th of April, and it was actually about a week later than that that it peaked out. The phased reopening was put in place, but then that was moved to uh, from mandate uh, because of legislative uh, action that was taken to guidance, and that basically flung open the doors. Mm-hmm. So in terms of elected <clears throat> officials in Kansas, should uh, those individuals test positive for COVID, do you think they should disclose that to the public? I don't think they really need to unless they um, go through the uh, uh, with respecting their privacy, if they cooperate with case investigations and contract tracing, just like everybody else, then I don't think it should be necessary. But if they, uh, like any other citizen, if they don't want to and willingly cooperate with the contact tracing, then I think it puts us, both the local health officials and the state health officials, uh, in the position of having to put out a public disclosure uh, so that anybody that did come in contact with a person, a restaurant, et cetera, an event, a funeral, um, whatever, then it's our duty to inform people so that they can um, be monitored carefully to see if they get the disease. Yeah, so for example, what if uh, there was a legislative committee hearing next week and then couple weeks later you figure out that five legislators in that meeting tested positive you might contact trace that back to that meeting in the capitol and without disclosing specifically who you're talking about you could put out a news release saying this event happened x number of people were positive be concerned yeah i wouldn't hesitate a bit to do that it wouldn't be a popular thing to do but the other thing about it is that there's behind the scenes there's lots of staff persons that are involved with Mm -hmm. that. There could be uh, conferees that are in the audience there. Uh, Not much of that going on uh, now. Most of it's done virtually, but um, there's still people around that are not necessarily in that room. So I think it's just good uh, open disclosure to help protect people. Mm -hmm. The governor had a phase plan. You know, she was among the first governors to shut down the K-12 schools to in-person instruction. She had a stay-at-home order. She had a kind of a phased-in plan uh, to reopen the economy, is you're a health officer, but how much how much weight do you give to the economics of all of this yourself? Yes. Um, well, let me first say that when when we look coast to coast to the 53 states and territories, the thing that got control of the growth of the new cases the fastest in states was when did they close the schools and when did they have a stay at home order or shelter-in-place order. Those are the two variables early on in the course of this pandemic that had the most profound beneficial effect. So the phased-in plan, real solid, uh, based on hard, measurable metrics, and businesses and the success of the economy was absolutely 
top of mind with that. So the question was, we want to prolong this for a very long period of time and erode away at businesses, or if we really put the pedal to the metal, um, you know, uh, um, even in 28 days, even two uh, incubation periods, if we did it really well, um, would uh, have a profound impact. I think the one thing that was uh, uh, challenging, of course, was that what was considered essential still allowed a lot of doors to be open with a lot of inattentiveness. And again, the big box stores, liquor stores, meat packing uh, was essential. If if those businesses would have instilled the right engineering and process controls early on, then I think we would have had a much different outcome and a much more positive outcome. But Retail was constrained, but it wasn't constrained down to zero. But economics, really important. And, I, and I've been a chief medical officer at, at very large health systems, and, and I know the importance of the bottom line, and, and it's always been top of mind. I, I don't ever uh, make recommendations in a vacuum, and that's true with schools as well. Schools are much more than just teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. It's about socialization, nutrition, mm-hmm. uh, mental health, et cetera. Yes, indeed. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's do a lightning round of some fundamental questions about COVID. It's a respiratory virus that's transmitted person to person. Why does it spread so quickly? Well, it's every organism has its own um, characteristics that make it either more or less easy to infect somebody. The probably the most infectious uh, are measles and pertussis, whooping cough. Um, we thought early on that the infectivity was probably kind of an average like an influenza. And it, uh, so one person's going to, without having masks and that kind of thing, is going to infect about four to six people. That's the yeah. R sub not infectivity factor. Mm-hmm. So it's just, just, that's the biology of the organism. Okay. There's an incubation period. I, I, I'm not a scientist. So good Lord. Uh, one to 14 days. Can someone transmit it? to somebody else two weeks after the infection? Yes. the um, It's unlikely. Okay. The farther out you get. Um, most people, uh, if they're going to get the illness, will get it uh, between day four and day seven, but they may not manifest the symptoms for 14 days. And if they start manifesting symptoms at 12 to 14 days, they might have been infectious all that period of time. Uh, so it's a little bit hard to know with exact numbers, but we're quite certain that people can infect others up to 14 days. Okay. What about treatments? I think the doctors are getting better perhaps with acute patients. There's some drugs out there. What do you think? Yeah, nothing's dramatic. Uh, remdesivir, which was developed uh, by Gilead Pharmaceuticals for Ebola, has been used for um, uh, COVID-19. Not great uh, double-blind, controlled, randomized scientific trials out there that comparing it to placebos. So therefore, it's based on anecdotal evidence, and it does seem to provide some benefit. Mostly, it doesn't probably save a person's life if they were going to die of it, but mm-hmm. it does for sure, or I should say it's quite, uh, people are pretty certain that it shortens the length of the illness. That's really, there's there's steroids that can be used on an acute setting and some other things, but there's not a good solid antiviral yet. There seems to be some shady non-scientific endorsements of treatments out there. Yeah, 
that, well, that wasn't really a question, but I will comment on it, that um, the one that's all over the Internet, of course, and there's a whole backstory to this, is uh, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc. And uh, there's been no evidence that those work, and they can be harmful. I've seen those firsthand, and they can cause both of those, uh, the azithromycin and uh, hydroxychloroquine, which is a malaria drug, can cause lethal cardiac rhythm disturbances, even in normal healthy people. So uh, we made the decision early on in my agency to not try to to uh, to corner the market on hydroxychloroquine because when the president talked about it being a benefit that was flying off the shelves and by the way there's a lot of things that hydroxychloroquine is good for and those people were going to be deprived of it we made the decision early on not to spend five million dollars on hydroxychloroquine because we call people in in France and we call people in Italy and New York and they said don't buy it it's not worth it it's not going to work <laughs> we'll prove it eventually and it's been proven okay what about the vaccine I'm really optimistic about the vaccine. There's three kind of different mechanisms that the vaccine can work by three different manufacturers. Oxford, um, which is AstraZeneca, has probably been at it the longest, and I think will come to market the first. All three of the methodologies and companies um, have uh, various stages of uh, phase one, two, and three trials going on right now. I, in my moments of optimism, think that we might have a vaccine before the end of the year. Interesting. Okay. What kind of percentage of vaccination do we need for it to be effective? Well, the more the better. Um, herd immunity, quote unquote, uh, and you can acquire herd immunity, meaning a substantial number so that it's, it essentially stops the spread of an illness, mm -hmm. is best at 90 to 95 percent of the population. If we did that through naturally occurring disease, get to 90 to 95 percent, we would probably have about six to eight million, sorry, six to eight million lives lost to get there through naturally occurring herd immunity. I can guarantee you COVID-19 is not something we want to have the old-fashioned chicken pox party for because mm -hmm. that would be yeah. too many people. That's ridiculous. I'm just thinking that more than 5 or 10% of Americans are going to say hell no to a, a vaccination. Well, and they will kind of get a free pass. Think about it this way. If if somebody, if 5 to 10% of Americans said, I'm not going to stop for stop signs, mostly they'd be okay. Mm. Because when 90, 95% of the people stop for stop signs, then they probably will be okay. Um, but I don't think that that's the way to look at it. I think we should get and push the most to maximize the uh, vaccine. But there are people out there that will certainly not choose to be vaccinated. They're not getting vaccinated for ancient diseases that have been essentially obliterated from our planet. Right. What about lingering illness symptoms? People have had COVID, and what are some of the things they're experiencing? Yeah, the, uh, the origin of your question is how many organ systems are involved in COVID-19. It's not just a respiratory illness. And by the way, we've seen people that have had to have lung transplants and uh, lobes of their lungs removed because of the COVID. But in answer to your question, and we've interviewed a bunch of people about this, uh, headaches, um, uh, blood clots in their legs, kidney failure, um, those are weakness. People feel like they cannot almost do their normal activities even three months sometimes after the initial infection got over. We've seen people that have had to undergo cognitive therapy to help them to learn how to think differently, uh, speech therapy to help them get their gain, regain their uh, speaking abilities, hearts. Uh, there's a, a what's called a cardiomyopathy, which means a viral infection of the heart where it doesn't function as a pump very well. I think there's going to be long-lasting uh, cardiac issues, uh, probably rhythm disturbances and pump failure 
uh, in people that have had this. So, I mean, I, I don't think that there's... We know blood vessels are affected by it. As a matter of fact, that might be one of the unifying factors of this disease. I think we're going to see more and more of this. As a matter of fact, even just within these last few weeks, I've been seeing more and more of this discussion about the long acting. This is not one and done. People, it's a long il- illness, 15, like my son had it 15 days, and fortunately hasn't had any symptoms linger that I know of. But boy, there's a ton of people out there that have. Okay. Let's talk prevention in addition to you know, personal hygiene, social distancing, which sounds reasonable. Should there be a mask mandate in Kansas or the United States? I think that uh, I think we would have been so much better off if we would have had strong federal leadership and these things from the top down early on, we would have had a completely different course. I have no doubt. These, the ones you just mentioned, Tim, do work. Uh, We tried a mask mandate and you saw where that went in the state of Kansas. That was also taken off the table and, and, uh, and uh, made it optional. But uh, that's really what we have now to prevent the disease are those measures that we've talked about. I would love to see a mask mandate. I will say also that, though, people can be outside and not have to have a mask on if they're distanced and they're walking in a park or those kind of things. I mean, it's really important to people understand principles and not just think about how can I skirt the rules, but what are the principles at hand? And when I can't control my environment, um, like I'm getting on an elevator, you don't know what's in the elevator. You don't know what was in the elevator five minutes ago if there's still uh, suspended aerosolized particles in the air. Hmm. When you can't control your environment and you're getting anywhere close to people, put a mask on. So why are people so resistant to restrictions like this? Is it just the independent streak or are people just stubborn? I think th- those are almost the same thing. Um, and it, it's it's not quite uniquely American, but pretty much so. A, a uh, Nature article just came out in June that compared six different countries, and the only ones that's failed like this has been us. Hmm. Um, now, and that's that, and we saw that in the state fair board who basically said, we need to put a stake in the ground. This is America. We're not going to cave. And uh, that's except, a bad thing. Except the state fair board did cave and yeah. canceled the state fair. Yeah, or they became they they reached a new state of enlightenment, which I think is really go. good. Um, <laughs> the but when you compare back to the Nature article, when you compare these measures in, in the U.S. compared to Asian countries, uh, Italy and France, uh, Britain, Great Britain, uh, we fared very poorly. But. It's not uniquely American in the sense that now, I don't know if you saw, but yesterday there's been anti-mask protesting going on in Germany, for example. And Mm. so I I think people are getting fed up. And yet, in many regards, I think we barely started. I think we just have to start considering this the new norm. Yeah, I know there were mask wars in the 1918 pandemic as well. You you can see photos where there's people standing in a line and half of them have a mask on, half of Mm -hmm. them don't. Um, Well... When I think about masks, I, I think there was a recent news story in Georgia. There was some sort of camping event, and uh, maybe 250 people got sick. Why, why would people make themselves a target at a mass gathering like that and not take some of the fundamentals? I don't think there was a mask rule. So Right. Well, I think uh, a couple things come to mind, Tim. One is that we, we talked early on how this was a disease of the elderly. Oops, maybe not quite so elderly, but adults. Oops, young adults. Oops, children. So I think we are a little bit slow to uh, epidemiologically to understand what segments of our population were most affected. And uh, it's true that kids uh, probably overall on a per capita case basis have uh, better outcomes. Not un- not uniformly, but they have better outcomes. But there's 
kids are not protected from getting this. And the stuff coming out in the last few weeks has, does have a chilling uh, effect on teaching in uh, classroom settings, I'm sure. Okay. Should people fear contact tracing? No. This is, I wasn't there in 1527 when we started this with the bubonic plague, but it's been very safe. It's been private. We, we treat the uh, epidemiologic tracking system like we do a medical record. So to me, it's like saying, are you afraid to go to your doctor's office uh, for fear of breach of privacy? And that's mm-hmm. how seriously we consider it. So no, mm-hmm. contact tracing is necessary and it's safe. Well, actually, there's a new state law that makes it completely voluntary. What are the consequences of that? Well, to me, that's like a fireman at a fire and somebody turns off the spigot. You have no water to put the fire out. It's in, we're going to, I think, with the rules that have been propagated and, uh, and approved through its early stages, we will be able to, but it'll be extremely complicated to get permission from everybody to do this. And, mm-hmm. and because some people can just flip you off and say, I'm not going to do it. And uh, we still then can go back and do press releases and the like and not trying to embarrass anybody or expose them. But And we, we, we do contact tracing for many things. You know, you get a foodborne illness, salmonella. You get, you know, somebody in your community has syphilis, gonorrhea, those things. We, this contact tracing is not new. And why this has been... I have a hunch as to why, but that's um, just a hunch. Uh, but why the COVID-19 for a period of time was chosen to, to disable us, essentially, or to put so many impediments is just absolutely the wrong thing to do. So it's politics. Politics. Explosure politics. There. Yeah, politics and pandemics do not mix. And this yeah. is a, that's a real it bad could example. Be that, you know, there's that adage about uh, don't let any disaster go to waste, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's always people hunting for an advantage in in a, during a nightmare. Well, and that, to that point, uh, I think it's I, I think it's unethical conduct, really, for uh, to to just try to use it for political gain and to try to disable or embarrass an administration. Mm-hmm. I just think that's wrong. Yeah. So speaking of Governor Laura Kelly, uh, she was the first governor to close K twelve schools to end public instruction. Uh, did you agree with her? Absolutely, and it was brilliant. Quite honestly, the back uh, the governor backed a stay at home order. Was that too broad? Uh, could it have been more nuanced? Like maybe you could have a metric in a county saying, "Okay, anybody over fifty cases, pick a number. You've got to implement X." I think that in retrospect, of course, you know your thinking is always clearly and more clear in retrospect. Right. The um, the Department of Homeland Security didn't do us any favors because we followed Department of Homeland Securities for what is essential versus what is not. Mm-hmm. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a one of the big box hardware stores is out, is allowed to to be open, and a small mom and pop hardware store is not. Now, liquors stores is liquor a, is it a necessary food item and. Uh, I think maybe in a pandemic, yes, but no, <laughs> kidding about that. The, uh, yeah, it's questionable. Yeah, but I mean, so the, the whole um, strat- stratifying what's essential versus non-essential, I think, is always open to question. But what I think could have been done better in retrospect is to really make the masks, social distancing, and everything in uh, be enforced in those. Mm-hmm. And enforcement is hard. There's no question about it. But uh, I still think businesses, if we do the things we've been talking about with the the anti-contagion control measures, if I may summarize it that way, are very 
successful even in a big box hardware store, but nobody does it. Mm-hmm. It's or tricky. an insufficient number. It's tricky business. So you have, let's say, Walmart, and you have some greeter standing there, and a guy walks in. He's got his gun on his hip, but doesn't wear a mask. And so you're expecting this minimum wage greeter to put his or her foot down and make this person put on a mask. I think it's a, just an outrageous expectation of those individuals. Um, so yeah. it's, a, it's a tricky business to enforce, right? Yeah, no doubt. Um, so there was a big switch. The governor was issuing executive orders. People more or less tried to follow those. Uh, but now they become recommendations, accepted or rejected by the 105 county commissions. Is that a good, is that a good thing? Well, um, I think that the benefit of standardized mandates across every county would have been better. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there are some people that understand principles and adhere to it, and there are some people that seem to dwell on and require rules. And if a mandate's in place, you get both of those people to comply. I understand the nuances of enforcement will make it difficult, and ultimately it gets pushed to local law enforcement. but. Uh, there's no question that from the federal government on down, early firm mandates. And you remember early on, there was even uh, criticism by the top of the federal government as to the seriousness of this hoax. And that really undermines the efforts throughout all the levels. Yeah. I think if the president of the United States is saying, don't worry about this, I've got it, then, then people are looking for an authoritative reason not to comply with recommendations or mandates. Right. Yeah. Should everyone be tested? No. But I let me give a qualification to that. Uh, everybody doesn't need to be tested for a diagnostic test, meaning the PCR in the nasopharynx or the antigen test, which are both diagnostic tests. One of the things we are going to do in the state of Kansas and is uh, to test people's blood, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a, 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 vein, a, a vein stick or a finger prick, uh, we're going to test for antibodies. But it's not to diagnose them at that moment in time. Because if you ask me what percent of people in Kansas have had the illness, I'll say, I don't know that. We need to do a point prevalence study. So we're going to uh, test thousands of people randomly selected to find out if they've had the antibodies that are measurable in the blood. So there's on one hand, there's a diagnostic test, and there's not enough testing capability in the world to test everybody. Besides that, tomorrow they could come up positive. Correct. That is the flaw with testing. Right. And uh, But the when we talk about what does it take to safely move ahead, one of the requirements is to we have to have the ability to do PCR testing on every person that needs a test today. And see, one of our Achilles heels right now is that if somebody's symptomatic, we test them uh, at the state lab. Uh, we, we cannot do every th- test that's needed in the state. We're doing 1,000 or more a day, mm-hmm. uh, but we're probably doing 4,000 a day total in the state of Kansas. Private labs. Yeah, private labs, though, are taking the turnaround time is seven days. So when I t- say to you we can do a PCR test on every person that needs a test today, then I'm talking about within 24 hours having the test results because then we can – quarantine, isolate, contact, trace, case, investigate, the detective work. Mm-hmm. So they don't, but everybody doesn't need to be tested. When you look at our, our, our uh, 
places, settings like the prisons and nursing homes, we do a lot of asymptomatic testing there if somebody comes up positive, because that we test everybody actually, and that way we can identify because there was always another case or two. Yeah, um, and then we can put those in isolation quarantine, right. and then five days later we'll test everybody again. But that's different than saying let's test three million people. When do you do every test them every days. five days? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's just not enough testing resources to do you that. You need an army of people to to right. take the samples, labs. It's just it's impractical. Right. So. In turn, the KDHE puts out numbers uh, on a regular basis regarding the number of positive tests, the number of hospitalizations and fatalities. Has the number of positive tests number become less relevant as testing protocol and strategies have, have changed? You know, there's one of the criticisms is like, oh, of course we have uh, more positive tests just because we're doing more testing. Right. Uh, it. The num- the percentage of positives is very important because if, to the argument that, of course, there's increased number of cases because there's more testing being done, if it were just uh, due to the fact that we are doing more testing, the percentage of positives would drop, mm-hmm. and it would drop low, low, low. So and, folks should look at that, the percentage of positive tests. Right, and okay. that's going to be one of the criteria that we will use for recommending schools have in-classroom or hybrid or, or virtual uh, curricula. Um, so, and we're coming down. Uh, I just looked at it this morning, thinking you might ask this question. Um, and that, because um, we were over 10%, um, and uh, now we're down more at about, kind of, uh, about 7%. Hmm. We'd, we'd feel much more comfortable to get, the lower the better, obviously, sure. but below 5 would would make me uh, um, relax a little bit. Have the number of fatalities exceeded or your expectations? No, we've been unfortunately right on where okay. we thought we'd be. When you're relaxing at home, the, the hour or 50 minutes, <laughs> 45, 30 minutes a day you have to do that, what worries you about COVID-19? Well, first off, it's a flawed question because when you say relax at home, you're thinking that I relax and I'm ever at home. <laughs> and okay. No, that's a fair question, Tim. Um, I worry that people just don't take this seriously. And we can't make people take it seriously. Rules help. And I think what's going to happen is that people are just going to get ground down and will either say, I guess we have to take this seriously, and I'm going to personally be responsible for myself and maybe my family members to take it seriously. Or the the other, I'm afraid of getting ground down, they can just say, heck with it. I'm just, uh, I'm, let's throw open the doors, uh, I'm done. And I'm hoping that people will, through the various communications and education we've done, hearing people's stories that are not scientists, not politicians, not bureaucrats, they'll, they'll eventually know somebody that was sicker than heck or died. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, I think that's going to be the wake-up call. Yeah, I understand the value of skepticism. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there that just think, oh, it's not going to get me. You know, right. I don't know anybody who's had COVID that, that diminishes over time. You, you've perhaps encountered stories, real stories of Kansans that uh, have struggled with this illness. And uh, perhaps you could touch upon some, some elements of those, with obviously without revealing, you know, people's personal name and information. Right. Just give us a sense of of uh, how that's gone for somebody. Yeah. And first off, I back to skepticism. I'm a, somewhat that way myself. I require data and information and research before I 
when there is that available. Matter of fact, a, a brief story. I was driving with my son when he was younger, and we were, it was toward nightfall, and there was a, a large mammal on the hillside right over there. And he said, Dad, what is that? And I said, well, this side of that animal is a cow, but I can't speak for the other side because mm-hmm. I can't see it. Mm-hmm. In other words, I require proof. <laughs> he looked at me puzzled and said, yeah, I got that. Uh, to your question, um, we have interviewed people that a uh, healthy 42-year-old triathlete, mother of four, did a triathlon while pregnant, who now, three or four months later, still has uh, headaches and, and significant fatigue. We've seen 19-year-olds um, who um, have now, months later, still those same cluster of symptoms. We've got a young girl, 20, excuse me, a young woman, 20, who is having a lobe of her lung removed. I know of a young woman, previously healthy in Chicago, who's undergoing a bilateral lung transplant, which is a catastrophic thing to have done, especially at such a young age. And these are people that didn't have any pre-existing condition. So the notion that, it, yeah, that happens to grandma in the emergency, uh, in the nursing home, no, it's, it's everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, that's extremely scary. So uh, before I let you go, when you took the job at KDHE in early 2019, I guess is January 2019, mm-hmm. when you found your office, what's the worst you, you could have imagined uh, that you would encounter as KDHE secretary? Anything well, like a pandemic? I did not see a pandemic in the future. Actually, I've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, matter of fact, I gave a lecture down in um, in um, December in, um, uh, to a large group of legislators uh, from around the country, and it was called Modern Epidemics and Why We Have Them. I've been talking about that for 10 years, so I, this doesn't December surprise me. December of 2018? 2019, okay. Yeah, 19. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it hasn't surprised me. I, I thought it would be an avian influenza. I did suggest that it was the next one would be coming out of China and that it would be because of close approximation of people and mixing of DNA and RNA genetic materials. And so it's it surprised me a little bit that it was a coronavirus. In retrospect, I probably shouldn't have been. But um, we way underinvest in Kansas in public health. That's mm-hmm. showing. The federal agencies have not been our friends. They've pirated a lot of the materials we needed. Um, I think if anything comes out of this, it's that interagency cooperation, federal, state, and county has to work. I'm very proud of the state and county responses in the state of Kansas. The legislative incursions and what the attorney general has uh, done have not helped us. Okay. Well, Dr. Lee Norman, I want to thank you very much for being on the Kansas Reflector podcast. I'm Tim Carpenter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.